says, get that India, big boy. Well, at the time of recording, it's a good evening, ladies and gentlemen, but by the time you listen to this, it might be good morning. Um, I'm John, a.k.a. 4020, and joining me as always is my good man and number one offsider, 60s. And um, before we get into the breakdown of the Round 17 action where the Parramatta Eagles defeated the New Zealand Warriors 24-18, we've got a bit of a public service announcement. Yes, it's a public service announcement from me, 40. What I'd like to announce is that the Parramatta Reels have just had a victory. Now, that might sound that it's stating the obvious, but sometimes supporters don't get to enjoy themselves or sometimes they choose not to enjoy themselves. So my public service announcement is just to remind supporters that we are in a 13-4 and four season. Tonight... We won't be ignoring the things that Parramatta need to do a little bit better and we're in our conversation on the tip sheet. However, again, it's a 13-4 and four season. It's not a 4-13 and 13 season. Anytime you have a win, you need to be enjoying yourself. I've already done my old man dance. I've been doing my happy man dance at home after watching that on television. To me... Wins are there to enjoy. Of course, that sort of form is not going to get a victory over the Panthers or the Roosters or an informed Storm team. However, we just beat a team that had been in very good form of late, who, incidentally, the Penrith Panthers only recently beat by six points. And we didn't hear any rounds of criticism for the Penrith Panthers when they only defeated the Warriors by six points. So Parramatta supporters, anyone that didn't enjoy the fact that we had a win, my little bit of advice is relax, enjoy the win. The next game is only five days away. Well, that's the Panthers. That's going to be a tough game. So enjoy the win. Enjoy the fact that it's a 13-4 and four season. Enjoy the fact that Parramatta's going to be in the finals. Relax. Be happy. Let's move on. Now, I'd be lying if I told you that my blood pressure doesn't rise during games on account of what the boys do every week. Because sometimes they, you know, they make the mistake or the bit of a blunder that you know, makes me curse and cuss. But in saying that, you're just going to be shaving years off your life if you can't enjoy a good win, can't you? Oh, absolutely. And that was... I actually you know, gave that bit of advice to a friend who messaged me and I said, and they said, look, we're neither of us are getting any younger, mate. You know, we can't afford these sorts of close wins in matches that we should win easily. And I said, I'm trying not to think of it, mate, because if I get stressed out too much, maybe I won't live to see the next and that, that, premiership. That, it's an offhand comment, but we've touched on it before. That... Uh, statement that it's a game we should win easily is very dangerous because yes. New Zealand were a very informed team. And <laughs> as we've seen every week with the Titans, you know, sort of upsetting people, the dogs nearly taking the Raiders last week, there is no easy game in the NRL. So, yes, we can compound things at times of our boys making mistakes and sort of getting away from the game plan, but there is no such thing as an easy game. So don't don't assume or take or sort of take for granted that a victory is a given because it's not. 
anyway. Well, if if and just to just to say, we've had so many years where we would be more likely to be sitting on a four and thirteen season, or at at the very best, we're starting to work out whether mathematically we can qualify for finals. At the moment, that mathematical uh, calculation that's being done at the moment is, is whether we play Penrith by, or the Storm in round one. Yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or the, yeah, there may or there may be some pessimists who are working out is it possible for us to drop out of the top four. Now, I know I'd much rather be sitting where we are and there's probably 13 other clubs that would rather be sitting where we are in the premiership at the moment. And that win today just put us four points clear of the fifth place team with only three rounds remaining. And I think that's a decent place for us to be sitting. And I think it's uh, validates the form that we've had for the majority of the year. We're not playing anything like premiership winning form. But once you get to the finals, it's a whole different ball game. And whether the boys can lift or not is definitely in there. I think it sits in that space between their ears. And uh, we'll be t- discussing, as we said at the start, a little bit more about where we need to go to, what was good about today, what was not so good about today, and maybe how things can be fixed. So speaking, so over, to you, over to you about the match. Mate. Yeah, speaking about the post-mortem from our Round 17 clash against the Warriors... Uh, the Parramatta Eels obviously got on the bus this week and went up the uh, Pacific Highway, stopping by at Central Coast Stadium, which is shockingly located in the Central Coast. Um, I thought they would have had a more interesting name than the Central Coast Stadium, but there you go. So as we uh, alluded to at the start of this podcast, Eels 24 defeat the Warriors 18. Uh, four tries to three in Parramatta's favour. Try scorers were Micah Sivo, Jai Field, Blake Ferguson and Wanga Blake for the blue and gold. Mitchell Moses sliding three from four from the try conversion rate and also taking a penalty goal in the 75th minute. Uh, on the other side of the scorer sheet, you had Chanel Harris-Tavita scoring a double and Hayes Perham uh, getting his NRL uh, uh, breakthrough try, first try there. Sorry, I had to think about that for a second. Um, I was going to say a rookie try. That's not a, You don't get rookie tries. Um, and then Harris-Tavita was perfect off the kicking tee, free from free. And there was one infringement, which we'll get to later, but Jazz Tavanga was sin-binned in the 16th minute. Uh, in terms of possession, Parramatta dominated actually in the end, which is a bit surprising. We had that run early on, but the Warriors sort of came back in the second half. 55 to 45%. Time of possession favoured the Eels, 32-27 to 26-33. Uh, the Eels were more efficient with their set completions, 86%, 38 from 44, whereas the Warriors were at 38 from uh, 28 from 38 at 74%. Um, the Eels led in runs, run meters, and post-contact meters. Line breaks were split, uh, split three apiece. Tackle break, uh, break slightly favoured the Warriors, 25 to 23. Uh, kick return meters very similar. So a lot of the meterage stats were within like sort of touching distance of each other. Uh, surprisingly, the Warriors won out in the offloads, 13 to 8. Uh, but the Eels were better in the kicking game. Mitchell Moses actually had a number of booming kicks in this game. And then tackle efficiency was about the same. New Zealand, 91.9%. Parramatta slightly down on that, 89.1%. Sorry. And in terms of missed tackles... Uh, the Warriors were ahead in both stats. So they said 23 missed tackles to our 25 and 13 ineffective, ineffective tackles to our 18, which adds up when you consider that sort of 2% swing or 1.2% swing in the differential and effective tackle rate. And then in terms of discipline, uh, Parramatta conceded 10 errors to New Zealand's 9, uh, conceded 3 penalties to New Zealand's 8, and gave away 4 ruck infringements to the 3 of the Warriors. 
So that's um all the sort of team stats there. Uh, yeah, it was a relatively even set of stats for the most part. Obviously, the Eels had a bit more possession, but that probably reflects the scoreline, doesn't it, mate? It, look, it does. And what I'm really interested in get, getting from you at this point, mate, is your take on the good that came out of that match from a Parramatta perspective. Uh, there, there is, It's a weird game, isn't it? Because I, I watched that game and was frustrated for long stretches because we had lapses and there was, you know, a couple of costly errors, including one of the sort of the better players on the day making a, a silly error at the end of the game that gave the Warriors a sniff. But on the most part, I, I thought that we put ourselves in a position to win, which is what you want. And then, yes, we also gave the Warriors a chance to win it back, but we we held on. Um, I thought that it was a big bounce back game from Wonga Blake. I thought Mike Acevo was quite solid as well, not perfect by any means. He had that miscommunication with Michael Jennings in the in goals, which was embarrassing and led to a line dropout instead of a 20-meter restart. But yeah, I think across the park, you had individual players sort of step up and do their jobs. Jay Field was very good um, coming in and replacing Dylan Brown. The Eels had a couple um, you know, useful little, not set plays, but opportunities for him. Um, I thought that Reed Marnie prior to his injury was fantastic. Um, I thought the forward pack through the middle was very strong. You had the two starting props, Nathan Brown and then Murata Niakore, all sort of punching it through the guts. So when we played tight and, and really contested the middle corridor, the Warriors struggled to go with us. Um, and then beyond that, we had glimpses of, um, of fluency and attack. And um, when we did, it was nice. But then, you know, sort of those same inefficiencies started to creep back into the game later on, which we'll get to in a bit. What stood out for you? What stood out for me, mate, was that the first half of the game, well, the first half hour of the first half, I thought we were coming back to something that was approaching the type of football which stood us in good stead earlier in the season. We won the middle. We created opportunities. There were probably a couple of extra opportunities besides those that we converted. There was the very tough pickup for Blake Ferguson off. Yeah, there was no a, way he was getting that one. No, it was it was one of those where the timing of where the ball bounced it was just going to be make was just making it impossible. Yeah. He was either needing to be a full step ahead of where he was, or for the exactly. ball to. It was good vision and execution from Moses, just the bounce did not go away. It was as simple as that. that yeah, that's right. And uh, there was the one that probably should have been iced or could have been iced by Kane Evans. Again, mm. it took a bit of a nasty bounce up. But the fact was that we were creating opportunities. There was a couple of other line breaks mixed in with that. But it all came off the back of very strong forward play, winning the middle, and the opportunities, the, the spaces opened up as a result of what we were laying through the middle. So I, I very much like that. And also like the fact that I don't think, even though the attack was a, a little bit impatient, impatient as we were getting towards the, uh, sorry, not impatient, a little bit clunky, I thought we mostly held our composure when the Warriors threatened. Yeah, so I, I, I'm going to take those positives out of it. I'll, I'll break down where, why I wasn't happy with our sort of general field defence, but I thought our goal line defence was much improved this week. I know the Warriors yeah. scored that late try where for once it was actually Blake Ferguson who was guilty of not staying on his man. Wonga actually taking his centre and then Fergo came in allowing the offload to go away. But aside from that, that was the only time they really threatened our goal line. Now, we'll talk about Wonga and Micah a little bit later on, but before we wrap up talking about the good, uh, before we wrap up talking about the good and maybe get to the not so good, 
Is there anything else that you would take from that match, mate, going forward from a positive perspective? Um, I suppose the team dealt with a bit of adversity today. And I know that we, we can talk about the Warriors copying a, a dodgy call of that uh, sim bidding of um, Jess Tavanga. But when Reid Miner goes off with over half an hour left, there's a very good opportunity for the team to fall into a heap there. And Ray Stone stepped up, next man up, and he does his job. And, you know, and he, he also rallied defensively. So I, I suppose it's just got to harness that ability to overcome adversity, overcome disadvantages, whether it's self-inflicted or by circumstance of the game itself. And, yeah, and, you know, the, the Warriors were playing for everything. A win this week gets some two points outside the eight, playing in the team that is eighth next week, which means it's a, a you know a huge leapfrog game. So they did a good job to just sort of reel in a team that was infectious and very much had a lot of a, the bounce of the ball going their way too. I very much like what you've said then as well about uh, overcoming adversity, and I think that had a bit to do with the fact that we did, to an extent, keep some composure where things weren't going exactly as we would have liked. We were a bit clunky in attack, where there was those freakish tries that the Warriors scored. We didn't let it overawe us. I agree uh, that it was a fairly tough call on the Warriors to have the uh, Tavanga sin-binned. But taking all that aside... The positive, overall positive for me was a little bit better composure. And I think, is, is there any news beyond it maybe being a burner with regard to Reed Martin's I'm injury? just checking now, and uh, apparently BA is confirmed, well, at least the initial diagnosis is burner for uh, Reed Money. Okay, so that should mean that a uh, little, little bit of physio and he should be sweet for... Friday night against the Panthers in what is a big game. At least we had that confirmation that Stoney's dummy half work is continuing to improve. And oh, that, that was it, that was huge, and it's a huge credit to the player himself, isn't it? But look, it is, and there's no shortage of work that's been done with his dummy half play because I can assure you that a couple of years ago when they were first toying with the idea of him being a oh. dummy half. <laughs> that the the work off the ground, the passing off the ground, was a long way from where it's, it uh, needed to learning, be. Learning to crawl before you can walk, before you can run, isn't it? Uh, oh, if, absolutely, absolutely. And if there was, if you had seen the work, the first amount of work that was done at training in trying to convert him into a dummy half, you would have looked at that and said, "This is the last bloke." I would ever try to turn into a dummy half because it was just a real struggle getting that uh, snappy pass off the ground at dummy half. So he's really come along in leaps and bounds in that regard. And anyone that wants to have a, an unfortunate <laughs> throwback to memory lane, his debut against the Melbourne Storm in 2018, I believe, featured him coming in as an emergency dummy half in the final 10 minutes of the game. And that it was not pretty. It was, yeah. That was all the nightmares of, of a debut player in a, in a sort of nutshell right there. So full credit to Stone for transforming himself as not only one of the most hard-nosed, hard-hitting, technically sound defenders in the game, but also a, a very handy utility player that you know, has stepped up to the plate big time in recent weeks. Now, we can't 
the objective in our podcast here, mate, without looking at the not so good today. So I know that you've probably got a list of things that you'd like to run through. So uh, I'll throw it over to you to start off, mate. Yeah, I I spoke to you earlier this week, um, come Teamless Tuesday, where I was a little bit frustrated that Wanga Bike had been named in the centres. And, you know, sort of, I'd gone so far as to say that if Blake had had a bad game this week, I was ready to sort of unload on the coaching staff because I've backed the coaching staff for years. And that's not without criticism. Um, you know, Brad Arthur's bench management has sometimes frustrated me. And at times I felt like he could have thrown a debut a certain, to a certain player or whatnot. But obviously there's more to just that from the outside looking in as well. But I think the coaches did a very good job of getting Wanger and both Micah up for this game. So my issue is with the players. And... Um, I think that just mentally, they're just switching off during games. And this game followed that same pattern as well, uh, barring what happened last week, which was a sort of uh, aberration anomaly. We get out to a good start, score a try or two, um, and then we sort of just put the cue on the rack and we invite the opposition back in. And it's been frustrating because we know that this team can go on and grind out really strong 60, 70, 80-minute performances, but they haven't done it for a while now. And it's frustrating. And I know we got the win today, and I am appreciative of that because it keeps us in the top three and it, it sort of sets up a blockbuster game against Penrith next week. But yeah, just the, those mental lapses are, are really frustrating. And I, I think they're sort of cascading to every facet of the game. Those defensive miscues and offensive miscues where you got, you know, guys out of position. And that happened a couple of times this game where I think at one point Jay Field had to take a surrender tackle because uh, two of his sort of block runners had not gone in the right corridor and he was caught behind them. So it would have been a penalty. And there was another one where Quentin Gufferson tracked the cross to the right and offloaded to an sort of inside runner, and then they had to take a take a knee to the ground because Guffo sort of run into the defensive line, and he wasn't sure if uh, it was going to be a penalty or not. So, yeah, just those little mental lapses. They, it's just here and there, but it adds up so quickly, so very very quickly to a much heavier load. Now, I I have the feeling that there's one player that disappointed you today, but just on what you were saying then about the lapses, one of the most difficult things about that today, and I've given them a tick when it comes to composure, but I believe that the composure is, I'm talking about in terms of not panicking with any sorts of plays. Where I agree with you is that there were crucial errors that were made by you know, as you said, a range of different aspects of the game by a, by a variety of players. Players who were having a strong game and it would be a dropped ball, uh, a missed tackle, uh, uh, just a, some, sort of, some sort of silly error that stopped momentum or was almost inexcusable. And as you said, you have to look at that and think to yourself, is this uh, mentally switching off at that particular point in time? Case in point, that carry from Nathan Brown. Yeah, who up until that point had probably been the best player on the field, barring maybe Roger Tulvasashek. And then correct on, on the back of a, a try we score, he sort of just cops up the ball and <laughs> the Warriors go on to make it a four-point game before we get that penalty goal to slot it back out to a six-point lead. So Well, yeah. rugby league... 101 in the modern game is after you score a try, you get to your kick. Come on. And we've we've been guilty of that too many times this year. 
of following up points with a mediocre set where we turn the ball over. And uh, it, it is very frustrating. And the last person I would have expected that from in today's game was Nathan Brown, yeah, because agreed. apart from that, he was outstanding. And yet that could have been a most crucial error in the context of the game. Yeah, and aside from that, it, it's hard to nitpick too much because obviously we had one of the best players in the field and Reed Miner get taken out. Uh, not well, taken out, sorry. The Warriors didn't do anything malicious to him. Um, he was taken off due to a, a, a shoulder hopeful stinger. But um, he was being, you know, very effective through the middle, arguably the most effective he's been all year, um, attacking really aggressively out of dummy half and working with Gufferson and Jay Field in that corridor. But yeah... I don't know. I mean, one of the big gripes, obviously, we touched on before, miscommunication at the back. You had Michael Jennings and Mike Acevo clash in the in goals, leading to a line dropout instead of a 20-meter restart. And then you had uh, Gufferson and, was it Ferguson, on the right side of the field, uh, run into each other. Yeah. So yeah. Th- those sort of things are very frustrating. And it's indicative of a team that is, switch- is switching off at times because, you know, that's very elementary stuff when it comes to rugby league. But, yeah, beyond that, um, one of the big issues I had in this game was I liked our goal line defense. Wasn't really a fan of our sort of ruck defense against the likes of Roger Tuovasashek. And I know he's a very good player and he's going to get his at some point, but that uh, lead up to the second try, that was frustrating because you had Kane Evans really dialed off on the backside of the ruck, allowing Roger to make that line break. And it's interesting that you mentioned these two areas, mate, because I'm not afraid to mention the preparation now that the game is over with, but there was extra work that was put into, well, this is by my observations, communication out on the field. That seemed to be a focus of training this week. And yet when it got to match day execution, as you said, obviously it was an area that was lacking. The other thing too, that was given a bit more attention was the Warriors' propensity to throw some plays out of the ruck. And so defence around the ruck and around dummy half plays and Roger Tuovasashek and that received focus at training. It was some of the extra work that was done was based around that. And it ended up, it ended up being exactly what was thought, where it did pose a threat. And it was disappointing that that very moment where a couple of blokes maybe didn't fulfil their assignment caused that uh, try to be scored. And yeah, once again, it sort of circles back to those momentary lapses that sort of add up to a, a, a weight far greater than the individual amount, right? So yeah, yeah. So um, one one good we, thing um, one good thing I, I forgot the point earlier that I did want to sort of pick up on was that the coaching staff and the sort of branch trust amongst the players did a good job of picking up on an exploitable area behind the, the defensive line for the Warriors with those early kicks. And they did that to great effect throughout the course of that first half. So um, kudos yeah. kudos there because, you know, any sort of well-executed game plan like that where you identify a weakness on video and then execute it is always worth a sort of clap and a pat in the back. I've just... Now, I just touched on that particular Warriors try that came from the dart away from uh, around the ruck. Comments made about those two Warriors tries that were put on against us, the, the, the spectacular ones. <laughs> the, the first one, which unfortunately for our sake is going to be featured on plenty of highlight reels moving forwards, I'm actually not upset about. Um, the Eels 
you know, sort of scrambled and scrambled and scrambled and came at the Warriors three or four times on the back of some uh, very opportunistic offloading and, and like, like sort of distance passing. And at the end of the day, that kick in behind was a it was a well-weighted kick. Um, Stoney made a great effort to sort of get around and make a play at it. And then, you know, I, I was speaking to you about this before the podcast. It was probably a little bit more contentious than the, the commentators made out to be about the actual run for the ball because Harris Tavita ends up taking out the legs of um, Ray Stone, which is why he fell over. Um, when he sort of tried to cut back inside him. So maybe he didn't put the hands in the back, but he certainly impeded Stone in the contest of the ball, and he wasn't shoulder for shoulder. So that that may be under a different video ref gets ruled differently, but what that's whatever. And so I wasn't upset about that try. Um, the, the second and third tries, we talked about why I was upset about the second try. The third try I'm a little bit upset about because, and I talked about this before, um, for once it was Blake Ferguson that uh, defensively was uh, in, the, in, in the wrong there. Uh, Wonga had actually sort of stayed on his man and not made the incorrect decision. And yes, uh, it wasn't. It's not Peter Hick on that side. It's uh, uh, gosh, I'm having an absolute brain fade now. I'll tell you right now. It is uh, Hayes Perham. So um, on that side, and he um, had sort of let him get on the outside, but then made the tackle. And Fergo hadn't backed his his centre in that two on two situation. So it was the incorrect read from Fergo, and it allowed that offload to get away, which is why the kick then got in the end goals, allowing Perham to score. So yeah, the, that one was a little bit upsetting in, in a different way because in the last few, few weeks, a few months, it's been Wonga Bake attracting all the criticism in those situations. And this time, he made the right read and right uh, tackle and Furco didn't back him. Yep. Do you, on the, on the balance of this week, do you think the performance of Wonga Blake and Mike Acevo justified the coach's faith that they placed in them? Yes. They um they obviously got put on the rack I reckon this week um I reckon there was a few home truths said to them amongst both players and coaching staff and they responded I mean you look at the numbers for Micah and it's not amazing he's out there with uh sorry two six he only got forty seven runs from forty seven runs forty seven meters from seven runs which is actually a lot lower than I thought based on what I saw because he got involved early on so he sort of the game went away from him and he didn't didn't follow it but he he contested the high balls. And he finished off the try that came his way in the first half. So that's the sort of baseline I have for him. And on the flip side, you had Wonga Blake go for 12 runs, 110 metres. And he got very well involved. He was coming into the middle to help the forwards. Scored a really nice try where he, he high-pointed the ball and got through three defenders somehow and got over the line. And it was actually another point where I, I thought he could probably go to a penalty for trying to contest the ball in the first half. Because he was checked by two runners. And uh, he tried to tap it back and went forwards. So... Yeah, very very happy with Wanga. He made a lot more um, better defensive decisions. And and speaking of defense, um, Mike Siva had an awesome jam on Roger Tuivasa-Shek. And it's what we said last week in that if you're going to make the jam, you've got to wrap up. And he absolutely leveled Tuivasa-Shek in that, in that tackle. So well done. I have to agree with you about the justification of those selections this week. Last week when we were discussing this, I suggested that Wanga Blake could actually be retained in the side, but at the expense of Mike Acevo. I think Wanga Blake delivered the sort of running metres today, which has not yet made me change my mind that he is a winger playing in the centres. He has very, very good carries. He's got that height for diffusal of bombs or also for the attacking side of the kicking game so I think there's still a small focus for me that sits with Micah he got more ticks on 
the winger KPI sheet for me, as you discussed <laughs> with defusals and um, finishing off a try. He didn't have to do too much with finishing that one off. Uh, you know, maybe a slightly tricky catch of the ball, but he did what he needed to do. I'm still concerned that he's a bit too upright in his carries when he's when he's in the backfield and looking to hit the ball up. Blake Ferguson, I think, is far better at carrying the ball from the backfield than Mike Acevo is. So I still have some concerns there. That's probably something that the coaching staff can work on if they are convinced that uh, Wunga Blake is uh, is still a centre. But on the on the basis of you're only as good as your last game, then Wunga Blake and Mike Acevo justified their selections moving forward. So I don't expect there to be any changes to uh, the team this week, uh, and we'll discuss that a little bit later in our in our pod. Why not? Now, can we? Can we look at the your three two one? I was going to say today, before mate. we got to that one area I was I was going to be critical of was I was a bit miffed as to why Oregon Kafusi only got a handful of minutes in the game, uh, but evidently I think it's it's been revealed that he had a some sort of um stomach bug or something to that nature, so that probably had him on restricted minutes. So right, yeah, so yep. that explains why he probably only got on late. Uh, in terms of my best three players, well, we we've spoken about a few of them. Um, I think that. In another game, sorry, in another sort of parallel universe, where he doesn't come off. Reed Barney would have been pushing for the three points. He was fantastic this week. He was all over the place in attack, sort of jumping on a dummy half, backing up, and and really testing the Warriors through that middle channel. Uh, so he might end up with the one point. Just looking at this at this list here, but I'm not sure. Uh, it's a weird. Brownie almost doesn't. You can't. I don't want to eat my words here, but it's almost impossible to give Brownie the three points because of that error that led to the Warriors' third try, but he was also so good. So, um, yeah, three points to Brownie, two points to Junior, and I'll give I'll give Reed the one point, even though he only played the 50 minutes. With uh, I mean, Guffo was decent. I know the numbers are good for him, but he had a couple of bad errors. Um, Guffo was solid. Fergo got his breakthrough try, which was nice to see, and was otherwise fairly tidy at the back there. And the other player that was probably pretty decent was Ryan Madison on the in the back of that sort of late second half surge that he had. So yeah, three Brownie, two Junior, one Reed Barney. It's hard to disagree with anything that you've said there, mate. I was very tempted to throw some points Guffo's way. I was very tempted to even throw some points Mitch Moses' way. But I think in game like that today, the victory was earned through the middle. So, like you, I'm probably going to look at what took place through the middle. And I was feeling very, very similar that Reed Barney was going to get my three. I'm still only going to drop him down to a two. I'm going to go with Junior for the three, Reed Barney for the two, despite only playing 50 minutes, and Nathan Brown for the one. Mm-hmm. And it like you, I think if Nathan Brown hadn't made what I considered to be a, quite a crucial error, he probably would have been challenging for the three points. And that's probably a bit harsh to, to <laughs> drop him from three down I mean, to but that's what that. sort of standards he'd hold for himself too, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. So uh, now just uh, moving forward uh, with that, uh, we've now got the week, uh, the week ahead. Yeah, so the Eels will finish round 17 outright third in the ladder, trailing the Storm by one win, so 14 wins for Melbourne, 13 for Parramatta, but one win outright ahead of the Roosters. 
and it sets up a blockbuster, doesn't it? It does. We're going to assume that there's going to be uh, perhaps no changes unless there's an unforeseen force change with injury. So, yeah, so Paramount takes the same side in. Yeah, monitoring Reed Marnie, uh, monitoring, uh, I suppose, maybe Oregon Kafusi if that, if that stomach virus, I assume, would be a sort of 24-hour cycle thing, but it could get worse, who knows, but knock on wood there. And I don't think Parramatta will be facing any charges, right? I can't recall any particular moments in this game that will be cited because uh, no one was put on report. And I can't think of anything in particular that will be cited. There was no crusher tackles. Um, I don't think there's any dangerous contact. No. So how do we how do we shut down everything that Penrith has been showing this season? My take on Penrith is that they probably have the greatest collection of explosive players, explosive attacking players in the NRL and they've got a player who is in form as a game manager in Nathan Cleary and while ever the momentum of the game flows their way they are almost impossible to overcome. So the way that I look at it is you're looking for ways to take momentum away from them. Yeah. How was that achieved? Well, I don't know how they went about preparing for the game in, was it round four when we played Penrith this year? Um, when we ended up winning 16 to 10. But the, the entire mental approach from preparation to execution is what the team needs to recapture for this game because Penrith were just as red hot back then as they were now. And they were absolutely up for that game. If you recall back to it, they came out and, and really physically matched it with themselves. Huge collisions um, on both sides of the park there. So I think that you've got to you've got to you've got to really push them through the middle because they they get a lot of ascendancy through the back of their uh, prop forwards and lock forward in uh, as I go James Fisher Harris and James Tamau. And so you've got to stop them setting a, a really comfy platform for those explosive weapons out wide to take over games. And you're talking about the likes of, um, well, in the middle, you've got uh, Api Korosau who can jump out of dummy half and be a threat first off. But then out wide, you've got Viliami Kikau, Stephen Crichton, and um, both their wingers are more than capable of finishing off a backline movement. So you, you sort of punch up in the middle and then you just you can't switch off. And I know it's, it sounds cliche and, yes, we're hammering it home, but... You just got to be switched on mentally against Penrith. They're going to throw lots of questions at you, but as we showed against them when we beat them, if you can hold on and wait for that that sort of it might just be one moment in the game, but if you can wait for that chance to counter punch and and launch that riposte and really hit them in the gut when you do land that blow, it can knock them back on their heels, and that's what we got to do. Well, in in you know reflecting back on that particular game against the Panthers earlier this season, it was a 10-minute period where we gained the ascendancy and delivered what was ultimately the knockout blow. And apart from that, as you said, it was very much staying with them. And a 10-point deficit was probably a good result for us when we were going into halftime in that game. And we went... Again, it was a matter of holding our composure against them. And as you said, waiting for that prime opportunity to deliver the knockout blow. The interesting thing, of course, was that Wanga Blake was central to delivering mm-hmm. that. He had 
two key moments. One where he scored the try in delivering a, I think it was a beautiful fend on Stephen Crichton from uh, recollection. And then the other one, again, he beat Crichton, but I think that time it was on the first time he beat him on the outside with a fend. Yes, that's right. And, and then, then the second time a, he went outside in and got um, and sort of wrong-footed him. That's right. So that was two of the three tries that were delivered in a very short space of time in the game. So let's hope that Wunga Blake took something from a a positive mindset from today's match because I was certainly much more uh, pleased that he would be going into the Penrith game on the back of his performance against the Warriors today rather than reflecting on his performance against the Rabbitohs. There'll be no no guessing where Penrith will probably throw. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they love attacking down their left edge anyway, so they didn't need the invitation in the first place. And it just so happens to line up perfectly against our right edge. So um, a big challenge for him this week, a very big challenge. Do you see any weaknesses in the Panthers' lineup? <sighs> Look, I... I accused us of mental lapses, and you know it's certainly true. But sort of, you look back to some of Penrith's performances against the likes of the Titans, and then off Queensland Cowboys, and even the New Zealand Warriors, and they've been um, guilty of switching off at times too. So I think if if you can sort of catch them in a lull or a lapse, and and really put the foot in the throat, there is a chance to not necessarily run away for game, but you know open up some sort of buffer. But they're they're, very, they're a very well rounded squad. So it is hard to sort of say, yeah, just attack down this corridor or isolate this player. I think that that's why it's a game of very much rolling up your sleeves and, and being committed for the 80 minutes. I think in that first clash that RCG had a couple of moments where he owned Fisher-Harris and made a couple of statements within the, the game there. I think... We did very well through the middle in that game, even though they had that 10-point advantage. The other thing I look at the Panthers is if there's a player that I would accuse of switching off from time to time, it's kick-out. I think he has some moments where you can get him in defence, where he's not quite there doesn't maybe has occasions where he doesn't read it as well as he could. I'd certainly be throwing a bit of attack his way and I'd be looking at wearing him out because I'm maybe maybe this is only just providing fuel for Penrith supporters, but I tend to think Kickow does a lot more work in the glory part of the field in the twenty meters of the attacking zone than he does bringing the ball out from his own end. Now, that's maybe me being extra harsh. Do you see any of that at all, mate? No, I think that's a fair criticism. And he sort of gets a free pass in the media all the time because he's such a phenomenally explosive player when he has the ball in hand. But, yeah, he he definitely goes missing for longer stints that I would be happy with if I was coaching the Panthers because he's it, it, it's not an attack on him. It's more of a challenge to you can be the best player in the game. Like, you're so physically dominant, you're so explosive, and you're such a, a game wrecker that I need you to do it. Like, I just need you to, to be the best you that you can be. And, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, I think I, he is guilty of, of definitely switching off in games. And yes. I, I should clarify that 
I wasn't saying that uh, the kick owl is an inferior player. No, yeah, I, I completely understand the imagination. And I'm I mean, I'd, I'd love if he didn't do if he didn't turn up against us. That'd be a, a huge, yeah. a huge start. But yeah, if I was Ivan Query, I would be certainly not upset because um, you know he, he's still a very good player. But I'd be telling him that you could be the Sonny Bill Williams of this generation. You know, if you want it yeah. that badly, you can go out there and dominate every week. Yeah. And and so, to to his uh, benefit, I suppose. Uh, the roster this year is so well balanced around him that he's able to take those sort of you know sets off that he has you know sort of done throughout his career, and it hasn't cost the team as much. Yeah, and what I'm suggesting is that we can make him less effective in our red zone when he's when they're on the attack because he is an absolute threat there. Just his sheer physicality and the lines that he runs there by making him work that little bit harder in defence, where mm-hmm. I think his his reads maybe aren't as good and he has to work extra hard, will make him work even harder still. Make him do more carries from his end of the field. Turn that ball over in the Penrith quarter. Run more plays on the sixth tackle. I'm all for us following that stranglehold method that the Storm... I think used to great effect where it's not always a kick to finish the set of six. You run the ball on the last play, run it towards the corners, give yourself a chance to score in a try. But if you don't score a try, you turn the ball over five metres out in the corner, mm-hmm. which is as good as putting a kick into the corner. Now, yeah, you obviously, start you don't line, always start line up the 10 pins in defence. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's times where you are going to kick on that last because you know we're near that point in the field. But if you're attacking in the in the red zone, you don't always have to put that kick into the end goal. You don't always have to do the the attacking kick. You can wear, you can play the long game, wear the opposition out, tire them so they haven't got as much left in their attack by making them do harder yards when they're bringing the ball out after they've defended. So uh, it's just that's just a thought there because you look at the Penrith team. And they're sitting at the top of the table with only one loss for a reason. That's because they're playing pretty decent footy. Exactly. All right, 60s. At this point, it should be fairly obvious that I enjoy diving into rugby league's rabbit holes. Well, you have been known to explore the odd conspiracy theory, mate. You're not wrong. And after our exclusive with Julian and his appointment as the Eels dance coach, my investigations this week have revealed there's a covert team of hairdressers working across the NRL team bubbles. And leading that team is our guest this week, so I'd like to welcome Sharon Papilia to the Tip Sheet. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Uh, Sharon, do you mind if we call you Shazza? Oh, of course. That's what the girls call me when we start throwing down the bubbly. Well, Shazza, how did your association with the NRL start? It's an interesting story, fellas. For many years, I worked with an exclusive NRL clientele to create signature looks. You might remember Joey John's red hair, David Williams' wolf fan, perhaps, Matt Peterson's sideshow bob, Willie Mason's afros, <laughs> and Fui Fui's cornrows. But uh, Mahe Fanua's classic mullet, and not forgetting Chad Townsend's plastic fantastic, are just some of my creations. They're all memorable, Shazza. Were there any fails? I mean, of course it was. Um, Yes, uh, during my apprenticeship, I worked on Laurie Daly's wig. Uh, not the greatest start to my career. 
I clearly made an error of judgment when I took peroxide to Todd Carney's head, and Kieran Foran's top knot is something best not discussed. But I will admit that my work with Aaron Woods at the Dogs was not my finest hour. However, I am not, I have to repeat this, I am not responsible for Cameron Smith. I've been trying to convince him to shave his head for years, but he seems destined to go down the hair pokes path. And now you're heading up a squad of hairdressers across two states. Yes. Uh, when the NRL had to go into all of their bubble protocols, my squad set up in Queensland and New South Wales to work exclusively with the players. And there's been some interesting hairstyles since the NRL resumed. How would you describe what we've seen? Well, to clear something up, there are some cuts that my team has no responsibility for. The fresh fade on Nathan Theories of this world are a yawn fest. Even the Oriental plat won't freshen those up. It's the goal of my team to take the NRL players down a different path. One of our most popular during the lockdown phase uh, was a creation I named Pacifica Blonde. Eels players such as Dylan Brown, Brad Taharangi and Mike Sebo were some of the first to go public with the look and Penrith's Uppy Curacao has continued to fly the flag. Now, the mullet seems to be gaining in popularity, Shazza. Oh, we've always had Sharks players such as Fafida and Dugan who embraced being bogans. But Jai Arrow has popularised the mullet up north. Recent NRL matches have showcased the Mohawk mullet. Is there any player you're particularly proud of? Oh, I can't go past Billy Army Kikau. Pacifica Blonde, tick. Mullet, tick. Mohawk, tick. Frizz, tick. He's making a statement. Is there a style that we're yet to see? Uh, I'm working on the reverse mohawk with a few players. David Gower seems to be coming on board with that. But I think a blue rinse perm could be mind-blowing. The Morris Twins would be ideal. But Michael Jennings, I'm looking at you. Well, I can't wait to see the outcome there, Shazza. Thanks for coming on the tip sheet and happy scissors for the rest of 2020. Now, we'll be playing primetime 7.30, if I'm not mistaken, 60s. That's right, and it is a big clash. It's been seen by the Panthers as a big clash. It's my understanding that the game sold out to their season ticket supporters a couple of weeks ago. I, I do recall seeing a notification about two weeks ago that they had uh, had exhausted allocation, sorry, is how I should have phrased that. Well, that means that it is going to be a particularly hostile crowd because you wouldn't expect that there would be too many ill supporters that would get access to tickets under those circumstances. We know how Penrith supporters feel about the Parramatta team and Parramatta supporters anyway. So the reception that the team is going to get, even with a smaller crowd, is going to be reminding the Eels that they are in enemy territory. It will be, again, as as much of a big match atmosphere as you're going to get under the restrictions with crowds. Something that I'm really looking forward to. To Unfortunately, I have to watch it on television. I always make sure, as much as I hate going to Penrith Park, <laughs> I, and you know I've got a history where I, I seem to end up clashing with supporters up there, not through any fault Chir- of my own. A bit, bit, bit of chirping from the locals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, mate, I've 
All I've done is been standing there in the blue and gold jersey and clapping my team, not making any smart-ass comments or anything like that. But for some reason, I've attracted a bit of a attention just for supporting my team up there recently. So <laughs> it's it's going to be a, a hostile atmosphere for the boys. Uh, but And as I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to catch it, even if it means I can't be there in person. So uh, good luck to the boys. Can I also, at this point, mate, send out a, a happy Father's Day to all the dads out there that are listening. My own father, he's 91 years of age. He's a true blue Parramatta supporter. He's been following Parramatta since 1947 when he was playing in the local competition back then as a, uh, as a young bloke going through the grades up to A-grade footy for a few clubs in the Parramatta district. There was the odd player that they that he played against that would make their way into the lower grades at Parramatta, so he always took great interest in that. And we he was a season ticket holder up to about 14, 15 years ago when it just got a bit too much getting to the games. So a uh, shout-out to Dad for Father's Day and to all the other dads out there. Excellent call. And yeah, I hope everyone had a fantastic Father's Day. It's always an important day to touch base with your parents if you, you know, you're not near them. So make sure you do reach out. It's not too late even the day after when you listen to this podcast, um, especially in these times. It is just good to reconnect with everyone given that we're all sort of distanced. So yeah, um, thanks for stopping by as always and enjoy the win. I know that there's going to be a few things to gripe and grumble about, as I said at the start of this podcast, but uh, you know, we improved to a record that would have us vying for the minor premiership in most seasons. So that's um, more credit to the Panthers and the Storm than anything else. And uh, we'll look forward to that massive blockbuster on Friday night. So be sure to tune in for the podcast following that result. Have a great week, everyone.